Romans chapter 16 is where we're going. And it's going to come up on the screen and also I'm going to read in my best BBC voice. This is the Apostle Paul writing this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrii. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me, not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. And so it goes on. Okay. So the plan for our our time tonight is to take a whistle-stop tour through a whole well, pretty much all of Scripture, and look at what Scripture has to say on this issue, and then land finally in Romans chapter 16, where we've just begun. Um, and then two weeks' time to look at the two controversial or difficult passages on this subject, which is in 1 Corinthians and also 1 Timothy. And so if you're interested in those passages in particular, then be here either in the morning or the evening in two weeks' time. Okay, so before we do all of that, let me just say this. We only have one aim, and that is to bring our lives under the authority of Scripture. So you will have heard people in the media saying things like, uh, you know, the church should just move with the times. You know, you, you will have heard that, particularly on news programs where they're talking about women bishops or something like that. The church should just move with the times. And to be honest, that is a rubbish reason for uh, changing the way that we understand things or changing the way that we do things is, well, society says that what we believe is outdated and so we'll have to change it. Uh, We'll find ourselves in a really, really sticky situation if we place ourselves under the authority of our culture because our culture says all kinds of things, endorses all kinds of behavior that actually are profoundly sinful. And so what we want to do is say, no, 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 regardless of what society says, we want to say, what is the teaching of Scripture? What was the teaching of Scripture 2,000 years ago? What is it today? It's obviously the same thing. And what will it be in 2,000 years' time? Which is also the same thing. Okay, so with all of that said, um, let's just talk a little bit about the cultural context, the backdrop to where this stuff is written. Pretty much every uh, um, society across the world in ancient culture was profoundly patriarchal. So what I mean by that is the men held the power. In fact, they haven't actually found a society that wasn't patriarchal in all of those ancient cultures. So uh, power was passed from father to son to son to son to son. And um, women, uh, the way that worked out, it wasn't great for them they really had no dignity and no status. And to be honest, they weren't considered to be intelligent. They were were basically considered to be airheads, and it wasn't really worth speaking to them about anything because it would just kind of go in one ear and out the other. And so there was no point educating women. Uh, There was no point treating them 
in any other way, really, other than with contempt. And in many ways, they were very much like slaves. They were the property or the possession of their father, first of all, and then their husband. And so, for example, you can look at all kinds of Greek texts from the ancient world, and you can discover all kinds of unpleasant things written about women. For example, Aristotle wrote this. The man is by nature superior and the female inferior, the male ruler and the female subject. For the two parties to be on an equal footing is harmful in all cases. The female is, as it were, a deformed male. That's nice, isn't it? Uh, That's lovely. Democrates said this, "To to be ruled by a woman is the worst insult for a man. And Plutarch said, the wife ought to have no feelings of her own and ought to make no friends of her own. So you're getting the general picture. That was Greek culture. It's obviously profoundly influential in the ancient world. Uh, If you were to look at the Hebraic culture of the time that the Bible was written, then you'd get a very similar picture. Philo talked about women as being imperfect and depraved in every way. And Eliza said it would be better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And so what we're going to see is that that is really the backdrop and everything that we're going to read in the scriptures from that point on uh, will come across as uh, um, uh, almost like a radical manifesto for a new way. Or let's call it a womanifesto for a new way. That's a little joke there. Some of you are supposed to laugh to make me feel better. Thank you. Um, Where so many of us go wrong on this subject, and actually with any other tricky passages of Scripture, is they start with the tricky passages, and then they build their theology on those. And what I want to suggest is that actually the best way to to deal with any passages of the Bible that are hard to understand is to look at the whole of the trajectory and the sweep and the the grand picture of Scripture, and then to, to come to the difficult passages. And so we're going to start our study tonight, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1, in the creation story. In Genesis chapter 1, what we see is men and women created as the the kind of the pinnacle of creation, and they're created completely equal in every way, equal in status, equal in authority, equal in their relationship with God. And where I'm getting that from is, first of all, uh, chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, they were made in the image of God together. So, chapter 1, verse 27. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, uh, it's not that Adam was the one who bore the image of God. It was that Adam and Eve, man and woman together, not just husband and wife, but um, uh, men and women together, working in partnership, in unity, being united together, somehow that bears the image of God. It looks like God. It shows creation what God is like. Secondly, God's blessing is given to them both. You see that in verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, God blessed them. And then thirdly, God gives them both um, equal authority over creation. So chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So there's no sense whatsoever that Adam was given more authority than Eve 
and there's no sense that Adam was given authority over Eve. Is that together, standing shoulder to shoulder, God says, I'm going to bless you, and, I, and also I'm giving you the authority to rule over creation together. Um, Genesis chapter 2 is kind of a, just a more detailed account of what has already happened in Genesis chapter 1. But there is room for some confusion in a couple of areas of Genesis chapter 2. The first one is in chapter 2 verse 18 where uh, it says this, The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And many of us would read that and what we'd read is um, servitude. You know, uh, Adam was created first and it's not good for, for Adam to be alone because he doesn't know how to work the washing machine or the dishwasher and so we need somebody else who's going to be able to help with those things and you know if they were handy with a duster then that would be positive if they could pick up socks from the bedroom floor that would be wonderful uh, that's what the kind of thing that we read when we read it's not good for man to be alone let's make a helper suitable for him but actually that word helper doesn't mean that at all and in fact, throughout the Old Testament, that word is used, helper, to describe uh, either somebody who is equal in power and authority and status, or somebody who is higher, uh, and often is used of somebody who is a redeemer, or a rescuer, or a saviour, especially God. So God is regularly, throughout the Old Testament, referred to as a helper. For example, in Psalm 33, verse 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. It's the same word. And so it's not that, you know, Eve is this nice little wifey who does a bit of help around the house. Uh, this helper means protector or savior or, or, you know, helper in a really robust sense. Other people have said, well, Adam was created first. And so probably in some kind of a, you know, he's the eldest son of the creator. He has more authority and more status than whoever's created second, who happens to be the woman. But to say that actually doesn't follow the sweep of the, this uh, creation story. Because what you see is that first of all, God creates birds and he creates fish and he creates sheep and he creates cows and stuff like that. And that's all pretty good. And then the pinnacle of creation is what he creates last, not first, last. And that's humankind. And if you want to really notice you know, how that works out, actually it's the woman who's created last. And that might mean, well anyway, we're just not going to go there. So, uh, it doesn't really work to say Adam was created first. That's not the, the, the sweep, the trajectory of the creation story. Okay, where are we? Um, in fact, we don't see a shift in the equality of the authority between man and woman until the fall. And of course, what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve rebel against God, and as a result, he finds them hiding in the bushes, and he kind of summons them out from behind the bushes, and he uh, pronounces a judgment on them. Uh, and, and he says, right, that's it, you have to leave the garden from now on you, you can't be in this garden and then there are a number of consequences that come from that and so for example he says to man from now on your work is going to be hard toil painful toil and he says to women from now on whenever you give birth it's going to be a painful experience but also in chapter 3 verse 16 God says to the woman your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you 
And so from that moment on, sin is like a virus that's eating away at the way we, we relate to one another. And one of the things that happens is that man has, uh, exercises an inappropriate power and authority over the woman. And, and actually, we see that all around us, don't we? You know, if you think, I was listening to a radio program recently about women who are raped in war zones. It's a very uh, kind of common thing for women in places, the defeated parties, all the women get raped. What's the deal with that? It stinks. It has the stench of death, the, sten- the stench of sulfur all about it. You know, domestic violence, sex trafficking, and so on and so on. All these different horrible ways that men exercise inappropriate dominion and power and authority over women. Um, and, and so therefore, it seems to me logical to say that if we can say that, that men exercising inappropriate power over women was a consequence of the fall, was, was part of the curse, then if we perpetuate that kind of uh, inequality in the church, then what we're really doing is perpetuating something that Jesus died to undo. Because Jesus died to undo the curse that comes as a result of sin. So uh, cracking on then to the rest of the Old Testament and as you would expect in a, in a profoundly patriarchal society most of, the me- most of the people who carry authority and leadership responsibility in the Old Testament are men but they're not all men and there are a bunch of women who, who God raises up at particular moments key moments in the life of Israel um, to lead God's people and we're just going to look at a couple of those first of all Miriam During the time of the Exodus, uh, God raises up three leaders to lead God's people out of Egypt and into freedom. And uh, one of them is obviously Moses, uh, who's the kind of overall leader. And then you've got Aaron, who is the priest. And then you've got Miriam, who's called the prophet. She's called the prophet in Exodus 15, verse 20. And in Micah, it says this, Micah 6, verse 4, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. And so Miriam is this this woman who who, uh, exercises leadership over the people of God. At the time of the judges, God's people are uh, in a mess. And, and very often it's kind of chaos all around. And so as a result of that, God sends his spirit on particular individuals. And, they, and as a result of that, they're kind of raised up as the national leader for that moment to kind of subdue the chaos. And in Judges chapter 4, God does that with Deborah, who's a girl just in case you're wondering. So the Holy Spirit comes on Deborah and she becomes the national leader. Now she's a married woman. And yet it's not her husband who becomes the the national leader, it's her. And she has direct authority over another man who's called Balak, who's the commander of the armies. And And she tells him exactly what she wants him to do. And so we have these women at key moments in Israel's history. And here's the thing, at no point is there a suggestion that these women are wrong for being the leader. And at no point is there the suggestion that Israel is doing wrong by accepting the leadership of a woman. No questions are asked of their call or their gifts or their anointing or their authority because they're a woman. And at no point does it say, well, God looked around and he couldn't find a single decent man and so he had to resort to a woman. 
It's just the sense that God raised this person up who happened to be a woman and she exercised authority for such a time as that. Okay, let's uh, rock and roll into the New Testament then. Uh, As the New Testament dawns in in Matthew chapter 1, the first thing we see is a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Jesus. It's the, it's the, uh, the family tree of Jesus. And uh, what's really striking about this particular family tree is that it's got women in it, which is, as far as we know, completely unique in ancient genealogies. Almost, uh, as far as we know, all of the other genealogies only included the men. And yet here we have these women, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba, included as absolutely critical in the line of descent of the Messiah, Jesus. And it seems to me that what the scriptures are doing is affirming, really affirming the value of women. You know, all of the other surrounding ancient cultures don't bother with the women. But God, in his book, he says, no, no, these women are important. They might not be completely of wholesome character, but they're important, I'm going to put them in. But it's Jesus who kind of blows the whole thing up, really. Because his treatment and the way that he deals with women is absolutely remarkable for that time, for the the kind of culture that he lived in. And we're just going to look at a few things. First of all, Jesus' treatment of women is strikingly respectful. He speaks to them as if they're kind of sentient human beings capable of intellectual thought you know capable of adult conversation so for example in John chapter 4 verse 27 Jesus is seen talking in public to a Samaritan woman and it says immediately after that that the the disciples are surprised because Jesus is talking to a woman I think we can read into that that they were staggered they were completely speechless that Jesus is you know most uh, Jewish men didn't even speak to their wives in public. And here's Jesus speaking to someone. And as he's speaking to her, it's as if he's kind of lifting her head and giving her dignity that she's never had before. Uh, In fact, it's often the women that Jesus chooses to reveal uh, some of his most important teaching to. So, for example, again, the woman at the well, he says this, "I, I speaking to you, I am the Christ. What a remarkable revelation to give to someone who's a bit, you know, a bit of an airhead and there's no point speaking to them and no point educating them. I'm the Christ. To Martha in John chapter 11, verse 25, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. It's almost like he trusts them to have the mental capacity to understand what it is that he's saying. And in John's Gospel in particular, what we see is John contrasting um, the men who very often just don't get it with the women who do. And so, for example, Nicodemus comes along. He comes along at the dead of night. I don't know why I'm... (laughs) Nicodemus comes along at the dead of night to Jesus because he's worried about what other people will think. And as he gets there, uh, Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand. Contrast that with the woman at the well who, who sees Jesus in the middle of the day and she understands immediately that this man is, is you know, everything that she's ever hoped for and she runs off and she communicates the gospel to her whole village. You see, we don't really notice this stuff because our culture isn't you know, the same. But for first or second century readers of this, these kind of passages, they'd be like, what a remarkable way to speak to women. 
Secondly, Jesus holds women up as examples, which again is absolutely unique in ancient culture. So for example, he talks about, the, uh, he points out the, the widow at the, the temple who's putting two copper coins into the treasury, in the, in the temple treasury. And he says, you know, she's given everything she has. It's like, what a remarkable example of generosity. Think about the, the, the woman in the parable where he says, uh, there's a woman, she's lost 10 silver coins and she turns her whole house upside down to find them. Often he uses women as examples in his parables. Also, think about the woman who anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and then wipes her, uh, his feet, uh, wipes the tears away with her hair. Uh, and it is clear that actually she understands when none of the men understand, she understands that, that he, his objective is to die and she's preparing him for burial. And Jesus says this, wherever the, this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told. What an astonishing thing to say in that culture. Also, Jesus included women as part of his uh, band of followers, his, his band of disciples. Um, I think we can assume that whenever we see that there's a group of disciples, not just the 12, but a wider group of disciples following Jesus around, that there were women and men in that group. And the reason I say that is because in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, Joanna the wife of Cusa, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And that's quite early on, that's Luke chapter 8. And then uh, even in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus has ascended to be with his father, we, chapter 1 verse 14 says that there were 120 people in the upper room, and included in the, in, in the disciples was a whole bunch of women and so some scholars would even suggest that that when Jesus is sending out the 72 to do ministry all over the country all over the region uh, that that there would be men and women in that band it certainly seems obvious that there were men and women around Jesus all the time which can I say would have caused people to question Jesus's morality that would have brought his reputation uh, into question Uh, Think about Mary and Martha, the story of Mary and Martha. There's Martha. She's in the kitchen, which is exactly where she belongs, um, according to the culture of the day. Uh, She's doing the right thing. You know, there she is working away in the kitchen because it's a bit like Downton Abbey. You know, the the men are passing the port round in the cigars and the women have retired to the kitchen. That's how it's supposed to be. And where's Mary? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Do you know the only other time in the scriptures that the the phrase sitting at the feet of is used is when the Apostle Paul is talking about how he said, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was his rabbi when he was training for ministry in the Jewish synagogue. So there's Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's assuming the posture of a disciple of a rabbi. She's training for ministry. She's receiving an education, which in itself is absolutely amazing. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, I'm glad there's a woman here because we needed someone to, you know, take minutes uh, or, um, uh, you know, away with you. You're not supposed to be here. What, What he says is, Mary has chosen what's right. She's done the right thing. 
Uh, lastly, Jesus trusts women to be the first witnesses of his resurrection. You know, like I said, women were considered to be airheads and not worth, you, you know, trusting with anything. And so, um, you know, in Jewish culture, if, if uh, there was literally no point in asking any women to be witnesses in a court case. Because you could have 20 women lined up saying, yeah, I, I saw the bloke with my own eyes, he took the money. And then you'd get one guy who'd come along and say, oh, no, no, I, d- I don't think that happened. And the judge would say, oh, there he is, you know, it's a clean-cut case. And so it's absolutely amazing that all four of the Gospels record that Jesus appeared, first of all, to women before he appeared to any men. Do you see that it's as if Jesus, by all of his actions and all of his words, is is saying everywhere else in the known world, women are oppressed. And everywhere else in the known world, women aren't considered to be intelligent or... or, um, capable of adult conversation but my people will treat women differently there'll be a quality between men and women there's a sense of him wanting to reverse the curse and to say look amongst my people I just want it to be equal between men and women equal in status equal in opportunity and if any of that wasn't certain then the day of Pentecost seals the deal Because on the day of Pentecost, like I said, there are 120 people in the upper room, uh, both men and women. And the Holy Spirit is poured out in equal measure on all of them, both men and women. And all of them speak in tongues. And all of them flood out onto the street and declare the wonders of God. And then Peter stands up to explain to the crowd what it is that's really going on. And he quotes from Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. It's an Old Testament prophet. Uh, uh, That's in Acts 2 verse 17. He says this. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy so it seems to me that the 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 day of Pentecost the outpouring of the spirit on men and women in equal measure is a validation it's the father's validation on the son's treatment Jesus the son's treatment of women throughout the New Testament and actually it seems like the early church just follows Jesus's lead And so in the early church, if you just flick through the book of Acts, you'll see that there are women prophesying, exactly like Peter said in Acts 21, verse 9. There are women teaching. And we'll come back to that. It's Priscilla and her husband Aquila in Acts 18, 26. There are women hosting churches in their homes in Acts 16, verse 40. And there are women, I think this is the most amazing thing, there are women being locked up in prison for speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. That's in Acts 8, verse 3. Let me just ask, why would you do that? Why would you lock up a woman unless she was considered to be just as much a dangerous revolutionary and being subversive to the status quo as the men? And so here we kind of arrive as quickly as we possibly can uh, at the Apostle Paul and uh, lots of people think that the Apostle Paul is a misogynist he's a woman hater and actually I don't think that that evidence is there Uh, he seems to take it for granted that that women had exactly the same status and opportunity in the church as women uh, as men so for example when he writes to the churches 
He's assuming, it seems to me, that, that uh, when the letter arrives at a church and everyone gathers round to hear it read, the, the men and women are not segregated. The, 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 you know, it's not like in the, in the temple uh, for the Jews where the men get to hear the sermon and the women have to go and wait outside in the outer courts or whatever. Uh, that's not what's happening. You know, often throughout his letters, he refers to women uh, and, and teaches them directly. And you see that especially in Philippians chapter 4 where there are these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who've fallen out. And he basically urges them directly, you need to sort this out for the sake of the gospel. And in fact, some scholars that I've read have suggested that because he's able to call out these two women in, in a public setting in that sense, uh, they must have been prominent women. They must have been people who were known by everyone rather than just, oh, I think that's some of the women. I, can't, I don't know who he's talking about. It's like, no, no, we, we all know who Euodia and Sinski are, probably because they were prominent in some p- position of leadership. Think about when he talks about spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He, never, he, he says, the Holy Spirit gives all of these gifts and he never says, but I'm really sorry, if you're a woman, you don't have access to spiritual gifts number 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D. He never does that. He just says, no, these spiritual gifts are given to everyone. We should eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Uh, And uh, in Romans 12, verse 6, he says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. So not according to the gender given to each of us, according to the grace. And so finally, we land in Romans chapter 16. Let's just have a look at some of these women in Romans chapter 16. First of all, Phoebe in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kenkriai. And remember I said earlier on, hands up if you've got, who's got a uh, NIV that's before 2011. If you do, then it'll say a deaconess of the church in Kenkriai. There's no justification whatsoever for changing it from deacon to deaconess. There's no such thing in Greek as a deaconess. Uh, it's just that people are uncomfortable with the idea that a woman might be able to carry what is obviously a significant leadership position within the church. Actually, we don't know. You know how... Um, Lots of churches and denominations define the difference between an elder and a deacon. So often in a church, an elder is someone who you know, does the spiritual oversight, and the deacons are the ones who do the more practical stuff. They oversee the building projects or the, you know, I don't know, the accounts or something like that. Uh, actually, the New Testament doesn't give us any reason to kind of divide things up. We don't know what the difference was between elders and deacons, really. All we know is that they were both prominent leadership positions. And so perhaps the word deacon might be better translated as minister, because that might be more consistent with its use in other parts of the New Testament. The second thing to notice about Phoebe is that she's called a deacon, or the deacon, of the church in Kenkriai. So uh, clearly she's an important representative of the church in Kenkriai. She's well known, she's a prominent person in that particular church. And uh, it seems like what's happening is that she is the one who Paul has selected to bring the letter to the Romans to the Roman church. And so she's representing Paul uh, in front of the Roman church. And um, he basically says, when she arrives, you know, I want you to look after her and uh, you need to give her anything she requires. And the Greek there is really clear. It's like, she says jump, 
you ask how high. You know, this, is a, this isn't a, oh, you know, dear little Phoebe who, who uh, makes the sandwiches. This is something much more important than that. And he goes on to say, she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. And that's almost certainly an incorrect translation. The word benefactor is the Greek word prostatis. And that word is almost all the time translated as leader. So we've got Phoebe, a minister of the church in Kenkrii. She has been the leader of many, including me. She's obviously someone who Paul deeply respects. Secondly, uh, Priscilla, verse 3. In Acts chapter 18, what we learn about uh, Priscilla and her husband Aquila is that they met the Apostle Paul in Corinth. They spent a year and a half working together and doing ministry together in Corinth, and then they traveled on to Ephesus. And there there was a church that met in their home, and the Apostle Paul was there for a while, and then he kind of left them to it and went on his way, carried on his travels. And in Acts chapter 18, verse 26... Priscilla and Aquila meet Apollos, who is this kind of thrusting, dynamic young leader, uh, very energetic, very passionate, very gifted, but with some dodgy doctrine. His, his theology is bad. And so they basically guide him along the right path theologically. It says they explain to Apollos the way of God more adequately. So this is a teaching role. This is, this is them uh, uh, teaching doctrine to Apollos who goes on to be an extraordinary church planter and and apostolic figure. What's striking about this couple is that first of all they're called Aquila and Priscilla which is most often well you know in Greek or Hebrew culture how you would write their names because he's the man so you'd write his name first. But what happens is when they start to do ministry together, their names are reversed and you get Aquila's name first, sorry, Priscilla's name first and then Aquila. And and that's completely unique. It's remarkable. It's really striking in that culture because you would never write those names the other way around unless Priscilla is the one who has a dominant voice in this teaching. Uh, Philip Payne, who wrote an absolutely brilliant book on this whole subject, he says this, This makes it virtually certain that she played a significant, if not the dominant role in these actions. And then we see them being described as Paul's co-workers in verse 3. And it's the same word that's used uh, of Timothy in verse 21 of chapter 16 it's a heavyweight word it's not a kind of a oh yeah they helped me out a little bit this is no no they were carrying the burden with me of preaching the gospel and looking after these churches uh, we come on to Mary in verse 6 it says who worked very hard for you we don't really know what that means we don't really know what the, her, her, her hard work was but we know that in other parts of the New Testament when people are described as working hard it's, uh, it has leadership overtones. So, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. There it is. Who care for you or who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. So, it seems like, you know, Mary is, again, a heavyweight character. She's, she's someone who's carrying significant leadership responsibility. And last but by no means least... Junior, verse 7. And again, if you've got an older version of the NIV, it says Junius, uh, 
which is a man's name. Uh, and um, there is literally no um, record in any ancient literature of somebody called Junius. The only reason that the scholars changed the name of the woman, Junia, to Junius is because of what Paul goes on to say about Junia. He says, um, oh, I've lost it. They, oh, Andronicus and Junia, they are outstanding among the apostles. Excuse me? Junia is outstanding among the apostles. And so it seems like right at the heart of one of you know, conservative evangelicals' favorite books of the Bible, you know, rich in, and I would include myself as a conservative evangelical, by the way, but uh, one of the richest theological books in the New Testament. And here's this list of profoundly significant women, women who were clearly carrying a significant amount of leadership responsibility. Uh, Phoebe, a minister who's been the leader of many. Priscilla, who took the great Apollos under her wing and straightened out his dodgy doctrine. Mary, who shouldered the huge burden for the church. And Junior, who was an outstanding apostle. Just think about how the Apostle Paul so often fights for his own accreditation as an apostle. It's not a word he uses lightly. He doesn't say, you want to be an apostle? I'll give you the name apostle if you want. You know, this is something that that is a very significant word for Paul. And yet he says she's an outstanding apostle. Jewish young men were taught to pray this prayer every morning. I thank God that I wasn't born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Which is unfortunate. Hopefully none of us are praying those kind of prayers. But the Apostle Paul essentially says, I don't think you should pray a single word of that prayer. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So as far as the the Apostle Paul is concerned, amongst the people of God, there shouldn't be any difference in status or ministry opportunity between Jew or Gentile. We see that all the time through his teaching. He's fighting to say, no, no, the, the, the Gentiles, they've been grafted in to the promises of Abraham. And similarly, for slaves and free people, he wouldn't expect there to be any difference in status or ministry opportunity. And neither would he expect there to be any difference in status or ministry opportunity for men or women. Uh, Next time we're going to look at these two really difficult passages. Uh, But but let me just make it clear where I'm going to be heading with that. You know, uh, biblical interpretation of difficult passages works by taking what the whole Bible says and then bringing all of that to bear on the difficult passages. That's how we do it. Let me just finish with this. Uh, For years, women have been asking, what am I allowed to do in the church? You know, what what will I be allowed to do? And I just want to say to you, if you're a woman tonight, or even if you're a man, that is profoundly the wrong question to ask. Because the, the question that each of us should ask is, not not what am I allowed to do, but God, what are you calling me to do? And what gifts have you given? And and how are you anointing me? And what are you wanting to release me into? 
You know, Jesus met this woman, and she'd been, she'd been um, unable to stand up for 18 years. She's kind of just stooping for 18 years. And Jesus says this, Woman, you're set free. And I believe sincerely that that is the teaching of all of Scripture with regards to women. Woman, you're set free. In fact, in uh, the King James Version, it says, Woman, thou art loosed. Uh, and we won't dwell on that too much. Let's stand, shall we? <laughs>